The reading this evening is uh, Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 to 54. That's Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 to 54. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hand, hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene called Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, 
And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from now from the cross and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified, exclaiming, Surely he was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rob, very much indeed. I want to introduce you to two people. Uh, they're both real, real story. Uh, the first is called Gareth Griffiths, and he was from Wales, and he was on holiday in the States. And as part of the holiday, he decided to go uh, tandem skydiving. Have you done that, not done that before? What happens is uh, you go up on a plane, and you get tied to an instructor, uh, and the instructor's got a big backpack on with all the parachutes and stuff, and one, two, three, and they throw you out the plane, and you have, I don't know, about three minutes of free fall, kind of Bond style, where you're just falling through the air at terminal velocity, uh, strapped to someone else. And I've never done it, apparently it's 
really, really cool. Um, and I would love to do it one day. Uh, the closest I've got is I've, I've, I've sort of done parascending, para but it's not quite the same thing, really. So there we are. So Gareth Griffiths is doing that. Uh, and, he, and the instructor is a chap called Michael Costello. And they're, so they're hurtling down through the air at uh, breakneck speed. And uh, Michael Costello looking at the thing on his wrist. And he pulls uh, the cord for the parachute. And nothing happens. And literally nothing happens. And there's these two guys tied together, hurtling towards the ground. But there's a reserve chute for exactly this reason. So Michael Costello pulls the reserve chute. The reserve chute partly comes out, but it gets tangled, and then it fails. I want you first to put yourself into the place of, of Gareth Griffiths. He's never done this before. And I guess maybe they can shout at each other a little bit. And he probably doesn't quite understand immediately what's happening. But he's had to go from, man, this is really cool, to, I'm going to die. And thinking, I've got two minutes. I wonder what would go through your mind in that moment. Think about the people that you love. Think about the things you haven't done. Michael Costello was thinking a lot of those same thoughts too, the instructor. But because of who he was, because of the experience he had, Michael Costello knew something that Gareth Griffiths didn't know. He knew that only one of them for sure had to die. And the people that were there on the day, people that knew Michael Costello well, people that saw what was going on, can't be absolutely sure, but this is the way it looks. Say that this is what happened. Michael Costello turned things around in the air so that his body was underneath Gareth Griffiths. In those final seconds, as they fell, said it was almost like he kind of tried to cradle Gareth Griffiths around him like this with his back to the ground, holding Gareth. So when they hit the ground, Costello was killed instantly. And Gareth Griffiths didn't break one bone in his body. He did have to go uh, a few days later for some surgery, for some internal injuries. But he could literally walk away while Costello had taken the full force of both uh, people from all of that height, and of course was killed instantly. And it strikes me that every single day, Gareth Griffiths gets up and he probably looks in the mirror and he thinks to himself, I am only alive today because another really good man was willing to give his life up for me. And I can only breathe I can only kiss my wife or my kids or whatever he does because this man was willing to take the fall for me and to die in my place. And that must be the most incredible experience. I should think it's on some days very difficult. And on other days he must have a wonderful clarity about what it means to be alive. And I want to bring to you tonight as we think about the death of Jesus, 
I want to bring to you the thought that uh, we are in the same position in the sense that what Jesus did on the cross is something for every single person in history. And so therefore, it stands as the, the event that has changed more in the world than any other event. It changes everything. It alters something at the fundamental, foundational part of the universe. But at the same time, as well as being massively cosmic, in its uh, consequences, it's also deeply personal. And none of us can understand and know what the death of Jesus means until we've begun to say, I believe that Jesus died for me. Because that's the only way it makes sense. Of course, we can say, I believe that Jesus died. There are very, 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 very few people nowadays who would say they don't believe that Jesus lived and did some amazing things and died. But it's a whole other step to say, I believe that Jesus died for me. And that's where we're going to go tonight. If you were here last week, uh, we were looking at the sort of first bit in the Apostles' Creed about Jesus. And what we were thinking about was this sentence, I believe in Jesus Christ, uh, the only Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary. And so if you were hearing the Apostles' Creed for the first time and you were thinking, oh my goodness, there is a God, he's created the world, he's brought it all into being, and then he sends his son, and his son comes down, born of a virgin as a human being, what on earth is his son going to do? And the Apostles' Creed, you can hardly believe where it goes next. This, this is how it summarizes the whole of Jesus' life. It says this, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. And just to make sure we understand, he descended to the dead. And so for, except for his miraculous birth, the whole of Jesus' life in the Apostles' Creed is summarized by his suffering and his death. That's it. That's all we hear. No miracles, no teaching, no acts of compassion. It emphasizes the overwhelming importance for those early Christians that Jesus suffered and died. They want to tell the story of a loving God who creates a world that then goes wrong and instead of abandoning the world, that God enters into the world to put it right, but at great cost to himself. There's a wonderful 16th century theologian called Philip Melanchthon and he said this he said to know Jesus is to know his benefits to know Jesus is to know his benefits uh, Melanchthon wanted to save us from an abstract or a third party uh, third person view of Jesus's death he wants us to know that we can't understand his death until we understand that it was for us personally and it will never land, it will never make sense until we've seen it in, the, in that light. And we've heard Matthew's harrowing account of the death of Jesus, which Rob read for us. We need not only to hear and know that story, but we need to know how it's explained and how it's celebrated in the New Testament. 
And the clearest thing of all is that the death of Jesus is literally world-changing at a cosmic level, but it's also utterly individual. I want just very quickly to do a a little whistle-stop tour and think about four word pictures that the New Testament gives us to understand what happened on the cross. The first one is that the cross, and this is really strange, the cross was a victory. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And many of the New Testament writers and later Christian writers celebrate the cross that we've just heard about as a place of a fantastic victory where good wins the day. Now, if you'd heard that, if you'd, oh, that was the first time we'd ever heard someone read from any of the Gospels, you'd be forgiven for thinking, that doesn't sound like a victory to me. At the very least, we feel all we see is a good beautiful man treated abominably how can that be a victory but of course we know things uh, deeper things we know that that was not the end and next week we're going to be thinking about the resurrection so I'm not going to steal any of that but the New Testament makes the point that we as human beings are held captive it's like we're in prison we're imprisoned uh, by things like greed and selfishness and also by destructive evil forces. And so Christians can say that the cross is a place of victory where Jesus, in the most humiliating way for him possible, took on and beat the forces of evil even though at the very moment of his death, it looked like evil had won the day. The cross is a place of victory that we look back to. It shines even on the darkest night. And so as a person and as an individual, if ever you are just feeling overwhelmed by failure and by that sense of hopelessness, then the thing that we do is we look back to the cross and we say, it was there. It was there that Jesus died for me. And it was there he won his victory. And so we know that love wins the day. Matthew gives us a tiny little hint of this in the passage that Rob read when he reminds us that at the moment of Jesus' death, some of the tombs in Jerusalem opened up. It sounds to our ears a bit kind of zombie apocalypse, but actually it was just a tiny little picture of the fact that in his death, Jesus had undone and turned around death itself. And if anybody anywhere is going to beat anything, then we want a God who's going to beat death and turn it on its head. That's the first picture, victory. The second picture is sacrifice. When the Bible uses the language of sacrifice, it's thinking about the Old Testament and about the temple. And in the temple in the Old Testament, animals would be brought to be sacrificed as a picture of the cost of sin and as a picture that things needed to be done in order to put us right with God. 
And so the language of sacrifice is used really richly in the New Testament about Jesus. And it says Jesus, who was the Son of God, came to offer a perfect sacrifice for sin. Because he was, at the same time, both a completely innocent human being, who had never done the slightest thing wrong, but he was also, at the same time, the Son of God, who loves us. And because he was both, because of his unique identity, he was able, on the cross, to offer a sacrifice that would finally put things right between me and God. And so as Christians, we believe we don't need a temple anymore. We don't need a fancy building. We don't need sacrifices. We don't need priests to do our sacrifices. We just need Jesus. Our own sin, our own brokenness spoils things. Spoils things with other people, but it spoils things between me and God. It disrupts that relationship. In the cross, we see that Jesus steps in and says, I will be the sacrifice. I will be the person who stands in that place. And Matthew, as the other gospel writers do, uses that incredible image. Don't know if you heard it. There's a curtain in the very, very center of the temple. And it's to keep people out from the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the holiness of God. And it's there as a symbol that a holy God cannot come face to face with imperfect people. And once a year, one person was allowed to go behind that curtain. And what they used to do is they used to get a rope and they tie the rope around that person's leg so that if God struck them down whilst they were in the Holy of Holies, they didn't have to go in and pull him out, but they could literally drag him out with a rope. So you can imagine what it was like being the high priest that year. You kind of limped in with this rope tied around you. And Matthew tells us that at the moment of Jesus' death, that, that curtain that would have been as high as this window here was torn in two. You could not get a more powerful, potent, beautiful image of the fact that all the things that were separating me from God because of my selfishness, because of my imperfection, that those things were cast aside because of what Jesus had done. Some of you will find that deeply challenging because you've grown up thinking, I'm better than other people. And when you hear the preacher talk about sin and greed and selfishness, you can immediately think of five people that that really describes very well. But it's not you, because you're great. And one of the things that we need to do as Christians who say, I believe that Jesus died for me, is to recognize that we need his love and that we need to be rescued. And we need him to step in and make things right because we can't do it on our own. Which leads me to the third image, which is the image of a ransom, which we all understand because people get kidnapped all the time in our world, don't they? And there's the discussion about what should happen when someone's kidnapped. Should you pay the ransom or shouldn't you pay the ransom? Well, think about what would happen if the person that you love or the, the members of a family, uh, of your family, are kidnapped. 
and you get a note through the door and it says, unless you pay the ransom, they're all going to die. Think about what you would feel. You would do everything possible to get them back again. And that's what Christians believe about Jesus. In 1 Timothy, we read, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. In Mark 10, 45, we read, The Son of Man did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The point is that greed and sin and selfishness keep us captive, but in, in, in the sense that we're in their debt. There's lots of students here. You may not have realized it, but you're probably already in quite a lot of debt. Okay? And it's going to grow. It's going to grow over the next couple of days. I'm sorry to remind you. Okay? And, but just imagine, hopefully, well, some of you will pay that back. Some of you won't pay that back, and the government will have loaned it to you. And we're all very fortunate. But imagine if you were in massive debt that you could never get out of. And that's the picture that the Bible presents of us as people. We can't pay our way out of trouble. We need somebody to pay the price for our ransom. And the only way that can happen is that we need someone who can live such a life of beauty and peace and truth and compassion and love that they can stand in our place. But there isn't anybody. There's no one. Even if we scoured this room and found the most beautiful, the most lovely person in this room, they still have a heart that is shot through with selfishness. Only Jesus can stand in our place. And Matthew underlines this by telling us what Jesus cried out on the cross. I would argue it is the most human thing that has ever been spoken. Do you remember what he cried out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? The New Testament tells us that when Jesus, he, he, he stood in our place so completely and so authentically that he felt what it's like to be completely cut off from God and to feel abandoned. He stood in that place of punishment and failure and evil and betrayal. And it was so complete and it was so real that that perfect relationship he had with his father was completely obliterated. That's what it means to say he came as a ransom for us. And lastly, let me talk about love. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. So when we look at the cross, we see two things. We see, first of all, that God is totally opposed to sin and greed and prejudice and betrayal. That when he sees those things in the world, his heart burns far more deeply than mine does or yours does at the injustice and at the evil and at the pain and the suffering that is in his world. And he wants to address that and to sort it out. But at the same time, we see how he does it. Not through punishment, but he does it through loving self-sacrifice by Jesus dying in our place. And so the cross becomes the place 
where we see the true face of God most clearly. And that's why our sisters and brothers in Christ all those years ago, when they were summarizing the whole of Jesus' life, only talked about his suffering and only talked about his death. And they said, if you want to see the face of God, then the only place you have to go is the cross. And Matthew underlines that in the words of the centurion that Rob finished the reading with. Surely he was the son of God, says the centurion, after seeing the way that Jesus died. And having seen that death, the centurion concluded that this was the truest, most faithful expression of godness that there ever had been and that there ever could be. I, for one, am bursting full with pride that there is a God in heaven who loves me and loves you so much and that in his desire to show what he is like and what he wants for us that he was willing to go all the way to the cross four pictures the picture of victory that the cross is a place where evil is undone and disarmed so if you feel mocked by evil, if you feel powerless in your struggle with evil, and you want to remember, Jesus died for me. The cross is a place where victory is won. The cross is a place of sacrifice. It's the place where guilt and shame are undone. Because guilt and shame can only have power as long as they spoil and disrupt my relationship with God. But once I know that he has stood in the place of shame for me, shame can't harm or hurt anymore. And so when you're struggling with shame and guilt, as we all do, then remember, Jesus died for me. The cross is a place of ransom. It's a place where Jesus steps in to do the one thing that we can't do for ourselves. Some of you will find that hard because you've grown up always doing things for yourself. And you've grown up being utterly self-reliant and independent. And maybe you've needed to because of the circumstances in which you were brought up. You have to yield to Jesus. You have to say, he did the thing that I will never do. But that is a yielding that brings unbelievable joy and peace. And finally, let's celebrate that the cross is a place of love. There are many times, most days, when most of us doubt that we are loved. Either because People don't tell us, or because we've been mistreated, we've learnt to think of ourselves as unlovely. We always have the cross. It is the most complete, most beautiful reminder to us that we are deeply, dearly loved by God. It's not talking about it love. It's not fake love. It's not pretend love. 
It's exactly the kind of love that we want and cherish and celebrate because it's love that does something and grabs hold of us even in our unloveliness and looks us straight in the eye and says, you are loved, Simon Cansdale. You are loved, Jack Percy. Every single one of us. When we say, I believe that Jesus died for me, we are proclaiming that God has acted on the cosmic level to undo the power of sin. But it will have no real meaning until we land it at the level of our hearts and our minds. And as we look at the cross, we realize and accept and rejoice that it was done for us. And then that leads into all kinds of marvelous, joyful living. But we don't have time for that tonight. Amen.